0: Well, I'd like you to, this morning, imagine that you and a group of friends were about to go on an expedition. You're going to uh, climb a mountain, and there's difficult terrain, it's not well marked, it's going to be an adventure. You're excited. Well, what's the first thing that you would do? the first thing you would do is probably talk to one another about any experience you had mountain climbing especially if it was the the same mountain but next you might get a map chart a course know any particularly difficult sections on this this mountain that you might have to come across and after that You would gather up all of the necessary tools and equipment, lay them out in front of you, and make sure that not only were they in working order, but that you knew how to use them. And then, once the course was charted, and the compass calibrated, and all of the equipment understood and in working order, then you would be able to set out. Might not be the most exciting thing, but it is the most important part of the journey. And as we begin our study together in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ this morning, this morning will be the task of laying out the tools and equipment and ensuring that they're in working order. And we'll do that so that we can make sense of what we will read going forward and, Lord willing, not only make sense of it, but be encouraged and blessed by it. So please open your Bibles to the book of Revelation. It's the last book in the Bible, last book in the New Testament. It will be in chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Revelation, chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Verse 3 Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear. And who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would bless our time this morning. I pray that you would give us wisdom and clarity. Lord, all of your word is profitable and beneficial. It has been given to us, God. By you, And I pray, Lord, that you would use this final revelation that you gave to Christ, who then sent it to John for us. I pray that it would have its intended purpose. Not to wind us down paths of endless speculation, but to bless us as we hear it, and as we understand it, and as we keep it. And so I pray, Lord, that you would be with us this morning. Help me to preach, and to teach, and help us all to, by the power of your Spirit, to understand what your Word has said. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, this book... I'll say this right off the bat. It is not an unknowable mystery. It's not. In fact, the word revelation itself, in Greek, it's the word apocalypse. Apocalypse in English, but that word apocalypse doesn't mean the end. That word means the unveiling or the uncovering. And so if the title of the book means anything. It means the words that are contained within are given to make things clearer, not obscure. It's to reveal, not hide. And so the book of Revelation is not a puzzle book to be solved. It's a book to be studied and understood. And it's easy for us to think that this is complex and confusing and hard to understand, but I really don't think it is. I think it's been made that way, but it doesn't have to be that way. And I don't say that because that's just my opinion. I I say that because of the three verses that we just read. Right? What, What do they say over and over in those three verses? God has revealed. God has made known, or maybe a better translation would be God has signified what will soon take place. And He's done it to strengthen those who hear. This is a book. That is meant to be a blessing and is a book that is meant to be understood. In fact, it, it actually begins with a blessing and it ends with a blessing. Blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in this book. So it's meant to be understood and it's meant to be obeyed right? or kept. There are things in Revelation that we ought to know and things we ought to do. It's, uh, it's interesting, by the way, in Daniel... In his book, which is very similar in style, at the end of Daniel's book, Daniel is told to seal up all the things that he saw. They were for the, for the future. They weren't for those people who are there today. They were to be sealed up, not known by his contemporaries, mysteries. But the Lord tells John to do the opposite. In chapter 22, verse 10, John is told, Do not seal up the words of this prophecy, for the time is near. If that communicates anything to us, it's that this book is understandable, it's a blessing, and, this is important, it is as applicable for the first generation of believers when the book was written, all the way through to the very last generation of believers alive when Christ returns. This is applicable for the church from the beginning all the way to the end. More than that, I believe it's valuable and understandable to the church because it's in the Bible. Some people regard Revelation as, not intentionally, but it's, it's, it's no use beyond, beyond the first you know, three chapters and then chapters uh, 20 through 22. The rest of the book is sealed and useless until the return of Christ. It's just too hard to understand. It's not a good way to think about the inspired holy word of God. And I think if we think that way, that, you know, chapters 1 through 3, they're clear. Chapters 21 and 22, I understand those. That stuff in the middle, I don't know. I think that might mean our interpretation is a little bit wrong in how we're approaching the book. It might not be the best interpretation if it leaves us thinking that there's 18 chapters that really just should be ignored. It's probably not the best way to understand the book, and it's going to leave us missing what God is trying to communicate. It wasn't written without a reason. The Holy Spirit did not waste his time appearing to John. You see it in in verse 1, right? God reveals things to Christ. Christ sends an angel to tell them to John. So there's a purpose. And the purpose is this. It's right up front. You want to know what, what this book is about? Here it is. We're going to come back to this at the end because I want you to see where we'll be going with this study. This is just kind of the groundwork. But the purpose is this. To bless The church by assuring the church of victory by magnifying the glory and dominion of Jesus Christ. I'll say that again. The purpose of the book of Revelation is to bless and strengthen and encourage the church by assuring her of victory by magnifying the glory and dominion of Jesus Christ. Any interpretation that fails to do this fails to interpret the book on its own terms. And any understanding that that relegates the book to unknowable mystery, it's it's a slight to the Lord who gave it, and it's a loss of blessing to be found. And now we're not going to be exhaustive as we we go. We, We can't go into all of the details, nor should we. And we're not going to interact with every competing interpretation As we go along, we're going to get the big picture and see how everything fits together to accomplish the purpose of the book. That said, it is helpful to at least know what theologians have uh, taught about this book and how they have approached it throughout the ages. And historically, there have been four... So if you're you're a note-taker, this will be a good day for you. (laughs) Historically, there have been four... Competing interpretations of the book of Revelation, and interestingly, every one of them has had times of ascendancy where most people believed it, and times of decline where very few people believed it uh, or held that interpretation. And there's lots of variety under these approaches, but they fall into four main categories. And I'm only going to give the briefest of explanations if you want a more in depth comparison. There are a number of books out there. You can talk to me afterward, and we can help help you find one, but the first method of approaching the book of Revelation is called preterism. In preterism, it just means in the past, and that's that's a hint to the approach. Preterism looks at the book of Revelation as having already taken place, and the main focal point of the book is the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So everything that this book says, except maybe chapters 21 and 22, it's already happened, The prophecies have already been fulfilled, and we should read the book in the light of that critical moment in history when the temple was destroyed, Jerusalem fell, and Judaism came to an end. That's one of the main interpretations. The second is the historicist view of the book of Revelation. And interestingly, this was the majority view, if not the universal interpretation, held by the reformers on through the Puritans down into the uh, 18th and 19th century, even though almost no one alive believes it today. But there's a, a strong historical precedent for this approach in the church. And they believe that the book of Revelation was the unfolding of church history from the time that it was written until the end of the church, the return of Christ. So the whole of church history... From, from when John, exiled on Patmos, wrote the book until Christ's return. That's how they approached it. The third, and by far the most popular approach today, is the futurist view. Futurist view, which is what I'm guessing most people in this room probably uh, believe, because you haven't really heard anything else. And there are different variations of this, but basically... And this view, by the way, this view has been around for about 100 years, 120 years, 1900s when it really picked off, uh, took off. But it views the book of Revelation from chapter 4 onward as prophecies about events leading up to and immediately before the return of Christ and the consummation of the new heavens and the new earth. So it's a, a timeline of the end times. This is a majority view and like I said, it's been around for and has been the majority view for probably the last hundred years. But Revelation is a book that describes the events that immediately precede the second coming of Christ. It's a prophecy about the end as we know it. And then lastly, number four, is the idealist view, which is people have held too often on throughout the history of the church and it sees the book of revelation not as a book about specific events in the life and history of the church but as a book symbolic of the struggles enemies challenges and victories that the church will face throughout its existence until Christ gloriously returns it holds that the book of revelation is a symbolic portrayal of the conflict between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness with Very few of the symbols corresponding to specific historic events, but rather many kinds of historical challenges, right? Economic challenges, political challenges, theological problems that the church will face throughout its time in a fallen world. And sure, they could correspond to actual historical events, but only as a symbol, and so the idea is that this book is to be a blessing for all Christians by describing what will happen to the church, not century by century, but generally in the church's life to encourage us to hold fast until Christ's return. Those are the four, four main views. And one, one helpful way to think about this, I always find helpful, is to ask, what is the main question each of these views asks When trying to understand this book, it's a main question they ask. And for the preterist, when in the first century did what is described in this passage happen? When in the first century did this happen? For the historicist, when in the history of the church did this passage happen and where are we now? For the futurist, where am I seeing this passage fulfilled in the headlines today? Because every futurist has believed they were within 10 years of the the end. And then, uh, the idealist. What does this passage say about the struggle of the church in the world? And although Christ Community Church has no official statement on the book of Revelation or on any eschatology for that matter, I myself fall into the fourth camp. I believe it is the most, most faithful to Scripture and to the book of the Revelation itself. And, uh, and for many, maybe for a majority of you, this will be an alternative view. But I hope that by the end you will find it compelling, understandable, and, in, and an encouraging one that you can confidently hold on to going forward. Now, before we begin, we really need to remember... Right, I said we were going to lay out the tools. Here are the tools. Some of the basics of biblical interpretation. So, when I look at the Bible, how do I make sense of what I am reading? And there are some basic things that have to be in place. And one of those, probably the most important principle applied to any book that you are studying in the Bible, is context. It's the most important thing in Bible study. What is the Context. What does this verse say? How does it fit into the paragraph? How does it fit into the chapter and the book and the Bible as a whole? So, uh, if you had a word and you wanted to know what does this word mean? How is it being used? The first thing you would do is look at the verse to see are there any indications in this verse to how this word is being used, what it means. And if it wasn't clear, then you would look at the passage as a whole. And then you would look at the book that the verse is in, and if that wasn't clear, you might look at other books written by the same author, right? If you were wondering what does this word in John mean, you might look at John, you might look at First, Second, Third John, because the Holy Spirit, when He inspired the Bible, He didn't violate the person of the authors, and they were able to write with their own styles, and that helps us to understand them better. And then, if you do that and you still don't understand, you go to the rest of Scripture. Let me give you an example. Examples would be helpful here. Take the word world in John 3.16. For God so loved the world. Then you have a problem. In 1 John, John says, Do not love the world. So what's going on? We've got a problem here. Does God love the world and then command us not to love the world? Well, if you take a look at the context of those verses and and how that word world is used in John's Gospel, it's a word that's very important. It comes up 57 times in John's Gospel and you'll see that the word is used differently in different contexts. It doesn't always mean the same thing. Not even in John's Gospel. Sometimes when the word world is used, it means creation or universe or the realm of, of, of man where people live. Other times, it refers to sinfulness that's in the world, what we would call worldliness. And even though it's the same word, a little bit of study shows that it's used differently by John, and the only way to tell is the context. What does the context tell us about how the word is being used? And by the way, Matthew uses the word world differently than John does. If you look in Matthew's gospel, every time the word world is used, it's always used in that general sense of creation. So you know when you see the word world in Matthew, he's talking about the universe. When you see it in John, you're going to have to pay a little closer attention. Another important principle when it comes to Bible interpretation is interpreting what is difficult in light of what is clear, not the other way around. For example, there are some passages that seem to teach that it's possible to lose your salvation, like uh, Hebrews 6. When you read Hebrews chapter 6, it's not exactly clear what's being communicated, what's being said, but it sounds like you could lose your salvation not clear again but that's a possible interpretation and so imagine you read that passage Hebrews 6 and you come away and you conclude Hebrews 6 and thus thus the Bible teaches you can lose your salvation a genuine believer can lose it well then what do you do when you encounter a passage like John 10 or Romans 8 both of which make clear without question that a believer cannot lose their salvation there are other passages I just picked those two because they're so obvious It says that you are secure in Christ. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. No one will pluck you out of my hand. Well, now you have a conflict. You have to decide, which is it? John 10 and Romans 8, many other passages that make it very clear, you cannot lose your salvation. Or is it a vague, difficult to uh, to understand passage in Hebrews 6 that could possibly teach you could lose your salvation? Which is it going to be? Well, obviously, you interpret the less clear with the help of the more clear. So you wouldn't say, you you wouldn't say, Hebrews 6 says maybe you could lose your salvation, therefore, whatever John and Romans say cannot mean you're secure in Christ. You would say the opposite. You would say, Hebrews 6 is not as clear, so I'm not sure what it means, but I know what John 10 and Romans 8 say, they're clear, and so I know that whatever Hebrews 6 does mean, a believer, a genuine believer can lose his salvation is not it. So you let passages that are clear and straightforward guide you and give you clarity when approaching passages that are not so clear-cut. If you want to know what the theological name for this is, it's the analogy of Scripture. You interpret Scripture by Scripture. You interpret what is less clear being guided by what is more clear. Now, those are tools that are fundamental for any kind of Bible study, but there are a few others that are specific to the book of Revelation. The first is how the book is arranged. The arrangement of the book, the structure of the book will help you to understand what it is about. And when you look at how Revelation is structured, how many of you, when you have a, maybe you have a study Bible, and you know, you get to the first uh, introduction to a book, you know, it says Matthew, and then it has all of these, you know, four or five pages of, of information leading in before you get to Matthew. How many of you just skip that? It's okay, you can, you can be honest. Okay, okay. there's there's two honest people in this room. (laughs) That's what we're doing this morning. We're reading those pages. When you look at how Revelation is structured, what is striking about it is the pattern of repetition. You know, often we think of Revelation as a chronology, right? It has a start, and then it works all the way through, linearly, straight ahead, to the end. But if you pay close attention to what's happening you realize very quickly that that can't be the case. It's not a timeline moving from chapter 4 to 22, but it's rather a set of seven cycles that are all about the same thing just with a different emphasis and progressively greater revelation of the judgment and the second coming. So this is not a book that's consecutive event after event in order. It's concurrent and symbolic, uh, cycling through the same thing again and again. And if you're skeptical, you say, I don't know about that. This is actually not hard to prove at all. Because in the book of Revelation, there are many final judgments. Now we know, right, it is appointed once for man to die and after this a judgment. We know there is only one final judgment. Right? Everyone agrees. That's... Clear. It's appointed once for man to die. After this, the judgment. You're seeing basic principle number two in action. We know there is only one judgment. So what do we do in the book of Revelation when we find multiple judgments? Well, whatever it is, whatever the structure is, it can't be chronological. For example, I said there were seven cycles, seven sections in the book. In the first section, it's the seven churches. And Jesus announces in chapter 7, 1. Or chapter 1, 7, to be coming in judgment. And then what does he do? He judges the churches. 1 Peter 4, 17 comes to mind. Judgment begins in the house of the Lord. You see that played out in the book of Revelation. Judgment begins in the house of the Lord. That's all it says about judgment. But it's there. And then in chapter 6, verses 12 to 16, that's the second cycle very early on in the book. Jesus Christ judges all of the earth. This is the passage where the great ones call on the mountains and the and the rocks to fall on them and hide them from the wrath of the lamb. Everyone understands this is a picture of the final judgment. But then again in 11:15, the third section, there is a final judgment again this time with the saints rejoicing In 14.14, the entire earth is harvested for judgment. In the next cycle, all of chapters 15 and 16 are given to describing the final judgment. You can see the intensity... uh, Ramping up every cycle. And again, with the fall of Babylon in chapter 17 and 18, judgment is emphasized again. And then finally in chapter 20, 22, it isn't even really symbolic. It's a a graphic picture beginning in 2012 on the fate that will befall the wicked as they and the devil and his angels are thrown into the lake of fire. It's the same thing, it's just described seven different ways ancient writers would do this. In fact, you, all of you, know about another place in the Bible where this happens. It happens right in the beginning. Genesis, chapter 1 and chapter 2. You ever read that and wondered why there was two creation accounts? There are. Chapter 1, God creates everything. You know, sea, sky, stars, light, birds, fish, animals, man, seventh day, he rests. But then on chapter 2, it zooms in on the creation of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were already created in chapter uh, 1. But then they're created again. And does that mean that they're created twice? No. It's telling the same thing in a different way. It's zooming in. It's not two separate creations. It's not two separate events. It's repeating the same thing twice with different details and different emphasis. That's what's happening in Genesis 1 and 2. It's what's happening seven times here in the book of Revelation. Maybe, uh, maybe some of you... Have you ever seen the movie Vantage Point? Maybe some of you have seen it. I don't know if it's a good movie. Amy and I were talking about this the other day. I watched all kinds of movies when I was younger uh, on, on the television. And I'd watch them later on and I'd be disgusted. By it. I was like, was my heart so hard-hearted back then that I could watch this and not even re- realize that stuff was in it? Well, actually... I watched it on daytime TV and all of that stuff was censored out, so I don't know what this, mo- what, the, what this movie is like. When I watched it, it was on TV. It wasn't that bad. It might not be so if you go to find it for yourself. But the movie Vantage, I've got to put a disclaimer in there. <laughs> the movie Vantage Point, it tells the story of an attempted assassina- assassination of the President of the United States while he's giving a speech in Spain. But, you know, the the, the sticking point for the movie, you know, what makes it special is it tells this story from different perspectives of people who were there that day. And so I don't remember the order, but there's there's a perspective of a reporter... And then it repeats, and it's the perspective of a, a local police officer, and then it repeats again, and it's the same story. It's from the perspective of a Secret Service agent, and then of a tourist, and then from the president, and then finally from the assassin himself. And it's the same thing, just told in different, uh, from different perspectives with different emphases. Well, something similar is here happening in the book of Revelation the same thing it's just being told seven different ways each of them with a different emphasis and progressively more of the final judgment and of the return of Christ is revealed the book actually becomes clearer and clearer as you go along through these cycles until you reach the climax in cycle 7 chapter 20 on that's the structure of the book and it helps us to understand what's happening here another important principle is how numbers are used in this book. Numbers play a very important role in the book of Revelation, and so does, so does time. But it would be silly to say that time and numbers are always literally what they mean. Seven doesn't always literally mean seven, and twelve doesn't always literally mean twelve, and 144,000 doesn't always literally mean 144,000. Right? Even though there are times in you know the Bible where it is clear that, you know, maybe 144,000 does refer to 144,000. I think of the, the censuses in the book of Numbers, very clear that this is an actual, meant to be interpreted as a number. But very often in the book of Revelation, numbers are used symbolically. And they're not just used this way in Revelation, they are used this way throughout Scripture. The Hebrews used numbers much more symbolically than we do today. I think probably the most irksome example for me of this is in Exodus 20. Uh, The giving of the Ten Commandments. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of fathers on their children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving devotion to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. I heard this preached before, read it in study notes before, that the Lord will be merciful to a thousand generations of those who uh, love Him, but if you hate Him, it will have effects that won't be wiped out for four generations. That's not what it means. Just consider the context. These numbers are not meant to be counters, right? Ticking down, letting us know when generational judgment or generational blessing will expire. The numbers are being used symbolically. The passage means God is far more ready to be merciful and forgive than to destroy. That's the point. He visits iniquity on three, maybe four generations, but shows love to thousands of generations. So the numbers aren't the point. They just help to make the point. In the book of Revelation, many examples of this. There are many numbers, and we'll, we'll get to them as they come, but one that stands out is the number seven. It comes up over and over again, and seven in the Bible is symbolic of perfection, of fullness. And we talk the same way. We just use different numbers. Right? We would say something is a ten out of ten, right? You know, we have a horse. That horse is a ten, right? You've got a horse on a field. It doesn't mean there's ten horses. It means it's a really good horse. You know, it's complete. There's no room for improvement. Well, the Bible does the same thing, but it does it with the number seven and not the number ten. Hebrew literature very often uses the number ten to mean a lot, Ten is used in Scripture often the same way that we would say a a gazillion. What do we mean? It's not a literal number. We just mean a lot. Now, again, of course, numbers are in uh, the Bible used literally, just like in the senses, but again, context guides you. Furthermore, in, in Hebrew writing you really want to emphasize a number? You emphasize it by repetition. And how do you repeat a number? You multiply it. Jesus does this when he tells Peter to forgive. Peter says, how many times do I forgive? Seven? Jesus tells him, I tell you seven times 70 times. Does that mean that Jesus tells Peter, you have to forgive people 490 times and that's it. That's not what it means. And we all know that. It means forgive without an upper limit. And so when you see multiples of ten in the Bible, sometimes it's not being used literally, but it's an expression of the vastness of something. We'll, we'll get to those passages as they come. But probably the most important thing to understand about the book of Revelation is that it's symbolic. More than any other book, This is a book filled with symbols. Numbers are used symbolically. Sometimes phrases are used symbolically. For example, the phrase, those who dwell upon the earth. You see it a lot in the book of Revelation. Well, guess what? It doesn't mean every human being who lives on the planet earth. It's those who are earthly or who are worldly And you know this because every time it comes up, it's contrasted with those who are in heaven or heavenly. But most of the symbols that you encounter in the book of Revelation are visual pictures of spiritual realities. And uh, I recognize this is a great point of contention in the church. I, I remember when I was in university... Bible college, I took a course studying the book of Revelation two semesters. It was uh, very interesting. The principle for understanding the book in that class so, the principle for understanding the book of Revelation in the class that I took was interpret everything literally unless you are forced to interpret it spiritually or symbolically. Interpret it literally unless you are absolutely forced to interpret it spiritually. And that's how most people approach the book today. And it ends up turning the book of Revelation into some kind of bizarre science fiction fantasy. I remember one class. I don't know if I should tell this, but I will. <laughs> I remember it was in one class, and the professor, he was, he was just railing against people who, who claim to take the Bible seriously, who claim to take it literally, and then they spiritualize Revelation and then he got to Revelation chapter 9, and Revelation chapter 9, that's about the, the locust, the giant swarm of locusts, if you're familiar with the book. And I remember he just started screaming. He was bent over, screaming at the top of his lungs They're not attack helicopters, <laughs> they're horse sized, scorpion tailed, human faced demon locusts. <sighs> if you didn't believe him, then obviously you didn't take the Bible seriously. And it was just like listening to a madman rant about his nightmares. (laughs) There is a big problem understanding the the book this way. This hyper-literalism. And the problem is this. It's actually not how God tells us to understand the book. It's right there in verse 1. In the ESV, it's a second sentence. Pay attention to the phrase, Made it known. He made it known. You know, that's the same word that's used in John's Gospel whenever Jesus performs a miracle. And it's not the word for miracle, it's the word for sign. Semeno here. And what you have in that verse is God saying He has given signs to John or signified to John all of the things that will take place. So they're signals They signify what will soon take place. You see, where we're going, because what are signals? Signals, uh, you turn on your blinker, the the light starts to flash. What does that flashing light signify? That you're turning right or that you're turning left. Right here in verse 1, God tells us up front that He is communicating to John through symbols. Symbols that signify What will soon take place? Symbols. It's a symbolic book. This book was intended to be understood as spiritually symbolic. And if you take a symbol literally, guess what? You miss the point of the symbol. For example, if I were to say to you, I had a mountain of work to do, what would I mean? I would mean, as you all would understand, I have a lot of work to get done. But what I would not mean is that I had a stack of something as high, heavy, and large as Mount Everest to get through. And if you took me literally and thought that was what I meant, you would be wrong. Because symbols are to be understood as symbols and that doesn't mean that things don't have real historical reference points Christ really is going to return to judge the living and the dead but a lot of the things that you encounter in the book of Revelation are their meaning is found symbolically not literally you know I've an example of this in verse 110. there are seven lampstands are they literal lampstands no Because we're told what the symbol represents. The seven churches of Asia Minor. And so we can be confident when we're going through the book of Revelation, whenever we encounter lampstands in the book, they're probably referring to the church. And if we can't find a correlating symbol in Revelation, we might move elsewhere in Scripture where this symbol is used. Just for example... Satan is bound for a thousand years. Well, where is the only other place in the Bible that it talks about Satan being bound? Matthew 12. And that what's happening in Matthew 12 will help you to understand what's happening in the end of the book of Revelation. That's a key that helps us understand the symbols in the book. How is a symbol used in Scripture? And how does it complement the main point of the passage? And how does it fit into the book As a whole, you know the book of Revelation is full of imagery from the Old Testament. Doesn't quote it chapter and verse, but it is full of imagery. Another danger that can creep in with uh, symbolic language—it's kind of along the same lines. It's getting bogged down in the details, and we're going to avoid that going forward. We'll probably have—we're not going to spend as much time in Revelation as we did in Matthew, uh, 20 to 20 four, twenty-five sermons, Lord willing, this being one of them. But it's easy to get bogged down in the details, and we're going to try to avoid that going forward. So there might be things that come up, and you wonder, well, what does that mean? And we won't talk about it at all. But let me give you an example of what getting stuck in the details looked like, and I'm indebted to uh, William Hendrickson for this in his commentary, More Than Conquerors, Uh, an excellent commentary on the book of Revelation. There, There are not a lot of really helpful ones, but that's one of them. And he says, consider the parable of the Good Samaritan and imagine it preached like this. And and you all can probably imagine it being preached this way. But the merchant is Adam, and his descent from Jerusalem is the fall. He's left the heavenly city, and now he's headed toward the earthly city of Jericho. But having turned his desires towards the earth, he falls into the hands of robbers. That is, Satan and his minions. And he is stripped of his garments of original righteousness, righteousness and left half dead, only half dead, in trespasses and sins. The priest and the Levite represent the law and its inability to save. They cannot help him, but the good Samaritan is Jesus Christ. And when he finds the poor sinner, he dresses him in, uh, he dresses him in the oil of the Holy Spirit and washes him with wine, the blood of his passion. Then he puts the man on his own mule, his merits and righteousness, and takes him to an inn, the church, and he leaves the innkeeper two coins, the word and the sacraments, in order that all the man's spiritual needs might be met until his return. That sounds really deep and profound, doesn't it? It's entirely wrong. It's the absolute wrong way to interpret the passage, even though every element of that interpretation is entirely true. Right? We have fallen. We do need the righteousness of Christ, etc., etc. But that's not the point of the parable of the Good Samaritan. The point is to answer a question. Who is my neighbor? And every element of the parable serves to answer the question, Who is my neighbor? It doesn't have its own specific... Meaning, all of the parables except, except one or two, they have one specific point in mind. Right, so the mule doesn't signify something. The coins don't signify something. The inn doesn't signify something. All it does is point to the fact that this good Samaritan who really should not be interested in caring for this Jew is caring for this Jewish man and meeting his needs. Jesus asks, He he, he, he expects people to understand the point of the parable when He gets to the end and He says, Who was a neighbor to this man? The Samaritan. So not everything has its own special meaning. And if you try and read the book of Revelation that way, you won't ever be able to make any sense of it at all. But all of the pictures serve the main point of the passage or the vision that John has received. What is the picture as a whole? What is its intended meaning? And how do the symbols make the point? So that's, that's the most important thing about understanding the book of Revelation. It is symbolic and it must be understood that way. And one final thing that helps us understand the book uh, and actually helps us to understand many of the symbols as well is understanding what was going on when the book was written. Now, There is a lot of debate about the date of writing, whether it was the late 60s or mid-90s A.D., and as much as I would like it to have been written in the late 60s, every indication from the early church record and historic analysis is that it was written around 95 to 96 A.D. Really, it's going to affect the interpretation very little, unless you're a preterist. But it was written close to the turn of the century, And some very significant changes were happening at this time. You wonder, what was the condition of the church around this time? Well, for one, Christianity was being clearly distinguished from Judaism. Why does that matter? Well, in the early years of the church, many Jewish Christians would continue to go to the synagogue. They would continue to practice the Jewish holy calendar. And in the eyes of Rome... Christians were just a sect of Judaism. They were a variety of Jew. That was a misunderstanding, but it was a misunderstanding that happened to bring a great benefit with it because Judaism was an officially recognized and protected religion in the Roman Empire. They had freedom to worship, They were exempt from worshiping the Roman gods. They had freedom to travel for religious matters. There were a lot of advantages to being a Jew. And so the church, wanting to capitalize on this, it wasn't quick to correct the misunderstanding. But in the reign of Domitian, things were starting to change. Christianity was growing. And Christianity was being recognized as Distinct. It was no longer viewed as a sect of Judaism, and all of those protections that the church for so long had enjoyed were starting to disappear. Christians were starting to get anxious. What does it mean for us now that the government is revoking those protections and privileges we used to enjoy? And although there was no widespread persecution at the time, most persecution that happened was regional or local, it was a time of increasing hostility towards the church. No, Christianity wasn't officially outlawed, yet it was becoming a threat to the agenda of the state, and the state was starting to take notice. The state was starting to say, these... We want to go this direction and these Christians might actually be a problem. You can add to that the continued deification of the emperor. Right? Emperor worship had always existed, especially in the, in the city of Rome, but it was about to be taken to the next level under Domitian where everyone would have to prove their allegiance by worshiping this so-called God-emperor. This would reach its high point or low point, depending on how you look at it, just a few years later under Emperor Trajan in the year 100. And this trajectory right, of state worship, though it wasn't in full force yet, it was clear to anybody who was observing the times that it was coming. And when it becomes clear that the state is going to start demanding the worship of its people, Christians see that and they think, boy, there's going to be trouble. The government is about to demand the unwavering, unquestioned loyalty of its subject, branding those who refuse as dangerous, traitors, and, ironically, atheists. So maybe you can see why I think it might be helpful to take a look at this book in our day and age. It was written when the church was entering a period where the protections it had enjoyed were starting to falter, where the state was demanding more and more devotion, even worship from its people with very little toleration for dissent. Hostility was on the rise. In chapters 2 and uh, 3, the church, very obviously, is starting to compromise, and though this is far from the most tumultuous time in Roman history... This period marks an entering into economic, cultural, and societal decadence and stagnation. I can't imagine the church has ever had to face a time like that in the past. But they did. And to help Christians persevere through the coming challenges and trials, God sends the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of the book. It's to draw us closer to Christ. And as we draw near, we are strengthened and we are encouraged not to compromise and not to give in, but to remain steadfast and faithful to the end. It answers the question, how do Christians live as citizens of the kingdom of God when Christ has not yet returned? How do they remain faithful when the forces of evil not only continue but threaten God's kingdom, dominate the culture, and appear to be flourishing and in ascendance. How do Christians persevere persevere in their anticipation of the return of Christ when the social, religious, economic, and political apparatus all seems to oppose the kingdom of God? How can we be faithful witnesses in the midst of a compromising church and a crooked generation? We do it. By turning our eyes to the unseen reality of the victory of Christ and His kingdom. Just, you, you want to know, what, what direction are we going to go with this? I want you to consider all of the characters and the antagonists in this book. Right? Satan and his angels. The beast, the prophet, the harlot, beast from the land, beast from the sea, the great red dragon, the city of Babylon, the armies of men arrayed against God, all the merchants and everyone who worships the beast... Do you know what they all have in common? At the height of their power, when their triumph looks inevitable, the very moment their victory appears certain, they are struck down and destroyed by the triumph of the Lamb. This book is a trumpet blast and a call to arms for the church to believe these things and to patiently endure and to overcome, not through military might, but through patient and faithful steadfastness and labor. Isn't this the whole scope of Scripture? Isn't it the suffering servant who saved the world? Isn't it the meek who inherit it? Isn't it the slain lamb that is the lion of Judah and didn't Christ conquer death by laying down His life? Like Christ, so His church. We are victorious by our endurance to the end. That's what this book was given to do, to strengthen you and to encourage you to persevere. It's the direction we'll be going in the weeks to come. And I hope and I pray that you will be encouraged by it and made strong. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that nothing formed against you will stand, that, Lord, your victory and our victory through you is secure. And I pray, God, that as we go through the book of Revelation, we will see the triumph of the Lamb, the triumph of Christ over all the nations of the world, over every evil force, over every trial and challenge and persecution that your church endures Lord this is an optimistic book this is an encouraging book there is a blessing to be found here strength to be found here and I pray God that your people would be built up by it and that you would have Lord your word would have its intended effect by preparing your church to live and bear witness well, not to shrink back and fall away, but to persevere in a crooked and twisted generation with a compromising church and an apparent hostility all around us. Lord, these things will mean nothing in the end. The only thing that matters in the end is, are we faithful? Have we persevered? Have we strived? Have we advanced the kingdom? Lord, there is nothing in this world, seen or unseen, that can hinder you even a moment, Lord. You are never in retreat, but you are always going forward to victory. And so, Lord, it's to you we look and to you we hope and to you we draw our encouragement and our strength. And help us, Lord, as we go forward to draw near to you. and. Draw near to the end when our faith shall be our sight. It's in your name we pray, and in your name we give thanks. Amen.